Good morning. I'm Jeff. Great to be with you this morning. Um, in our, our final week in this series, I want to begin by letting you know that uh, my kids are at the age where I am still the reigning champion of any play fighting or wrestling in our house. Now, I know that the day is coming when I will be seriously challenged for that title, but for now, Dad still reigns supreme. And you know how these things go, like the kids want to do this, they want to, you know, have a little bit of a fun punch up or a little bit of a wrestle or something like that. Uh, but then because of my incredible strength um, in just, you know, not just in my arms, but, you know, just this rock solid core and, you know, legs like tree trunks and all, all these things, um, eventually, you know, I will subdue them or they will lose and they'll be stuck and not able to move. And, you know, if they can, they'll get their hands up and say, all right, that's enough. That's enough. Uh, you know, I surrender. I give up. You win. <laughs> so I walk away. But then plot twist, all of a sudden they're full of energy again and they'll come at me from behind, you know, flailing punches or trying to knock me over. Very, very unfair. So then I have to muster all of my strength again and enter into the battle and then finally I will again conquer them. And once more, hands go up, I'm sorry, I surrender. In the song that we sung just a moment ago, the word is and the concept is re-surrendering. And that's what happens when I fight and wrestle with my kids, that they might surrender once, but that's not the end of the story. Eventually, they'll have to re-surrender and re-surrender and re-surrender. And so in the song, we sang that about God, in our relationship with God, this idea of us re-surrendering. So is that the same thing that happens between me and my kids, or is, something, is it something different? Well, that's what we're going to explore today, and then we're going to sing the song together at the end of the service as well. So first, the title, Resurrender. The people who wrote the song from uh, Hillsong Church, Brooke Legitwood and Chris Davenport, they were with a small group and they were worshipping and, and talking one day. And they were talking about this idea of, um, of, you know, we come to God, but it's not a one-time thing. You know, we surrender our lives to him, but then there's a repeated need for us to come back to God in resurrender. And that's the words that they were using. And it wasn't until later they found out that it's an actual word in an actual dictionary, this idea of re-surrender. And so the song begins with these words. You're turning over tables and calling for return. You're turning over tables and calling for return. And in Matthew chapter 21, that's exactly what Jesus did one day when he walked into the temple in Jerusalem. So Matthew chapter 21 verse 12 says that Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and he said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So in this scene, Jesus is turning over tables, literally, and he's calling for return, but from what and to what? So, so first of all, a couple of interesting things about this story. We don't just find it in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's record of Jesus' life. Mark and Luke also have this exact same story, and it's in Jesus' final week of his life. He comes into Jerusalem, people praise him as the Messiah that they've been waiting for, and then the very next day he goes into the temple and upends a whole bunch of things literally and physically and spiritually for them. 
But then in John's gospel, we have a similar story, but John puts it right at the start of Jesus' ministry, almost near the beginning, and he has some different details, and it's at a different time of year. And so we think Jesus actually did this twice. Two times in his life and his ministry, he went to the city of Jerusalem, he went into the temple, and he turned over tables. Now, if you are a merchant or a money changer, and you've worked there a long time, you'll be really annoyed the first time, but the second time, you'll be like, come on, didn't we just go through this three years ago, and this guy is back again? This was clearly very important to Jesus, and his disciples knew how important it was because they all recorded it. Now, Jesus wasn't angry about money in church because at other times, even in that very same temple, he talked positively about people bringing money and giving financially towards the temple and towards God. So why was he turning over tables? In their tradition, what was happening at the time is that people would come from everywhere to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship. And they would come and they would offer sacrifices, sometimes a sacrifice of money, but most often a sacrifice of an animal, so a physical animal that would die on an altar. And they would offer this to, first of all, for the forgiveness of their sins and their family's sins and their nation's sins, so they could be okay with God. But second of all, they would do it um, because it was the way that God had set up the temple system. The priests and their families would eat the meat that had been sacrificed. So there's a double meaning. This whole system had been set up and people were totally into it, but distorting it. And there were super clear guidelines of what you could offer and what you could sacrifice. So in your everyday life as a citizen in those days, the money that you used, you know, if you go out and you buy a coffee, (laughs) you know, you would use Roman currency. If you're buying, you know, a sheep normally, you would use Roman currency. That's, you know, give your kids pocket money, here's some Roman coins. But when you're in the temple and you're making a financial offering to God in the temple, it had to be in the Jewish currency. And so you'd walk into the temple, all I've got on me are Roman coins, but there helpfully were money changes there in the temple. We can take your Roman coins, give you the Jewish coins, and you can go in and worship. But they would rip you off. They were extorting the exchange rate so that they would make more money. And they were making it really hard for you, a poor person, to worship God freely. And, and it was worse with the animals. Because if you live a long way away, it's not practical for you to BYO animals to sacrifice. That would be annoying and difficult and they might die on the journey. And also if you lived in or near Jerusalem and you didn't own your own animals, you would have to buy one anyway to then sacrifice it. And helpfully, because of supply and demand, people would bring animals and they would set up their stalls and they'd sell you these animals. It's so easy. Just walk to the temple, buy this sheep, buy this goat, buy these turtle doves. They're perfect. They're exactly what you need. And they only cost sky high prices. And so what was happening, what made Jesus so angry was, was this, this issue. Not that people were making a living. Not that Jesus is anti-business or anti-economy. What was making Jesus so angry, what led him to turn over those tables and call for return, is that people were setting up these barriers to stop you worshipping God in the way that you needed to. People were desperate to enter the temple to offer God the sacrifices that they thought were pleasing to him. But when they got there, they were stopped by these exorbitant prices and these people who were, were, were massively overcharging and they were stopping you from coming to God. 
the house of prayer for all nations had been turned into a den of thieves. And Jesus is calling for a return. I want my house. I want God's temple. I want this community to be a place of prayer. I want to return to what it was supposed to be. And so as we read this passage and we understand what's going on and we sing the song, we can make it personal. We can understand individually what that could look like in my life. And and we'll talk about it personally in a minute. But what Jesus did wasn't personal. What Jesus did was about the community. There were some issues in the community that were affecting each other's faith. And so he was speaking and and demonstrating to the whole group, to the whole nation. And the song, Resurrender, it's not just personal, it's communal. It's about us. And so we sing, we are your people and you are our God. And we are your temple. So make us holy like you are. The Apostle Paul explained it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says to the church, Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the Spirit of God lives in or among you? And he says, God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, some of you were told by your parents that you shouldn't get tattoos because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Sure. But what Paul's writing about here is that we, the church, the people of God are the temple of God and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so it's important to understand that, yes, God cares about you as an individual. He absolutely does. But he also cares about us. He cares about how we're treating each other and how we're affecting each other's faith and what our spiritual life is like together. So, you know, we understand that salvation and a relationship with God is is personal. So no one can decide it for you. You know, if you think about church as family or, or cr- the Christian life as family, the family of God, God has no grandchildren. God only has children. And so if you grow up in a family where your parents are already Christians, they're already children of God, what you grow up into is essentially being a grandchild. Like I was grandfathered into this family system. This is what I grew up in. But, but God doesn't have a relationship with people as as grandchildren. God only has a direct relationship with people as children. And so if you were, were, were blessed and benefited from growing up in a family that understood God and your parents were children of God, that doesn't automatically qualify you. It just gives you some understanding and a head start to know about God. But you have to decide to enter into a direct relationship with God as his child. On my dad's side, my grandpa on dad's side grew up in a family that had fairly nominal, you know, kind of basic faith, would go to church, but had no reality in their lives. But as he grew up, he wasn't really grandfathered into anything. He grew up and as a young adult, he decided, no, this is, this is a faith I want for myself. I want a, a relationship with God. And so he chose to become a child of God himself. 
My grandma on dad's side grew up in a family that had real faith. Her parents were strong followers of Jesus. But in the same way, she had to make the decision as she grew up that she also wanted to become a child of God herself. And then so on to the next generation and, and then to me. Does that make me like a great-grandchild in the faith? It, it doesn't. It means that I learned about faith from my family, but at each point in my life, as much as I was able to understand it at that level, I had to choose to become a child of God. And so if you feel like a grandchild of faith or a grandchild of something else, the decision still lies with you. You get to decide to have a direct personal relationship with God. And you can begin that relationship with God at any moment because it starts in your heart and connects directly with him. But then with the family, there's this dynamic that we see all through the Bible that God sees not just the individual child, but God sees us also as family. He cares about the spiritual health of his family. How are his sons and daughters caring for each other? How are the brothers and sisters of Jesus getting along and accepting each other? The church, the group of people who are filled with his spirit, God cares about us. And so God sees as a unit and cares about the whole global universal church, every Christian all across the world. And God cares about the whole church in Cairns with all of its smaller families and communities within it. And God also cares about us as we gather today. The Apostle Peter writes about it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says to the church that you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And and as a result of that, not as a result just of your individual salvation, as a result of the whole, the people, the priests, the nation, You can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. And then Peter quotes from the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. It says, once you had no identity as a people, but now you're God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. But then, dear friends, I warn you as you know, kind of in inverted commas, temporary residents and foreigners in this world, in the kingdom of light, but living in this world, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. So, so imagine with me, if Jesus walked through the doors of our church. You know, in one of the accounts of Jesus entering the temple, he'd seen what was going on. He'd went back to camp for the night. He'd made a whip and he brought that back in through the doors of the temple the next day to to drive out the animals. Imagine Jesus walking into the doors of our church. What would he say about our spiritual life? What would he call us to return to? What, what things did we used to do in our faith and in our life that, that we've, we, we've let slip? What would Jesus want to clear out and clean out of our lives? Who among us is a money changer whose table and coins needs to be flipped? 
Who among us is selling overpriced animals who would be driven out? Who among us has been putting up barriers that are slowing down and hindering and stopping other people from coming to worship God? I don't have a list because I'm not here to point fingers or name names. Because there are two things that I know about those questions that I've just asked. And I know about this song. And the first one is that it starts with me. It doesn't start with someone else. It starts with me. And, and not because I'm the lead pastor of our church, even though that's perhaps an added reason in some ways. But it, it has to start with me because I'm the only one that I have ultimate influence over. It has to start with each of us. That's how you begin to restore a marriage is with yourself. That's how you begin to mend a friendship. It's with yourself. And it's also how you begin to reform a church. It's with yourself. It starts with me on my knees before God. And so the Apostle Paul pleaded with the church in Romans chapter 12. He says, and so... Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable, because this is truly the way to worship him. So the way of worship in the temple that, that Paul and the people he was writing to understood was what Jesus came into, what Jesus walked into, it was killing animals on an altar as a sacrifice to God. It might sound gross and unnecessary to you, and it is today. That's just the way that they did it. And when you kill an animal and you put it on an altar as a sacrifice, it stays there. It, it has no choice. It's dead. It cannot crawl off that altar. But in contrast, when Jesus came and he offered his entire life and his body to God and he went to the cross willingly, he stayed on that altar by choice. Jesus could have called a thousand angels to come to his aid to remove him from that suffering and that sacrifice, but he didn't. And the problem that I have and the problem that you have is we're not like animals. We're more like Jesus. You are not a dead sacrifice. Paul says you're a living and holy sacrifice. And living and holy sacrifices at any moment can choose to crawl off the altar because they've decided it's too hard and they've decided they've had enough. And so it's up to me to choose to continually offer my body and my entire life on the altar to God. And Paul pleads to let it start with me, with my life upon the altar. And, and sometimes, sometimes that decision of re-surrender, you know, you realize that you've crawled off and, and you, you know, you, you want to crawl back on again. Sometimes that comes with this overwhelming sense of conviction from God that I, I have done the wrong thing. I have walked away and you feel the experience of that conviction from God, not as crushing guilt and never ever as shame, but as an invitation to return, to return to that place of offering your life to God. And other times, it doesn't come with, with crushing conviction. It just comes with a, a realization. 
you realize that you've hurt other people, you realize that you've walked away from God. And just with the awareness and the insight, the discernment that God's given you, you go, I, I, I can see how far I've come and I want to go back there. However it happens, any time you reach that point of realization is a time to crawl back onto the altar. I can remember one night in particular it happening for me. This was years ago at a night service. And uh, we're sitting in the service and it wasn't anything in the songs that we sang. It wasn't anything in the message that was preached that night. It wasn't in a particularly profound announcement. It wasn't in the moment that I took communion. It wasn't in a prayer anyone else prayed. But just as I sat and stood there during the service, I just reached this, this realization that I had never, ever realized before about a way that I had hurt someone else, a way that I'd hindered someone else's faith, someone in particular, a person. And, and I, I knew what I'd done, but it had never, ever hit me before the impact that that had. And, and I knew I just knew that I needed in that moment to be right with God again and also to be right with the other person. So I was able to, as I sat there, I can't remember what the preacher was talking about, but I knew what I was doing as I was praying and and getting myself right with God and re-surrendering to him. And then as soon as I could, I got out of there and I went straight to that person's house and, and confessed to them and we talked about it and we cried and we prayed and we began the process of restoring that relationship. That's what the moment of resurrender sometimes looks like. I had already been surrendered to God one big time in my life and then many, many other times, but that's an example of how sometimes daily, sometimes hourly, we have to resurrender and yield again to God. And so whether you hear God pointing to a specific table that needs turning in your life, or whether it's something that you're just aware of that needs to change. It has to start with you. And the second thing I know is that surrendering once isn't enough. So in Revelation chapter 2, the Apostle John had a vision of Jesus. And one of the things Jesus gave him were letters to send to churches. And so to the church in Ephesus, Jesus dictated to John. He said, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, if you don't turn around, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. We don't know exactly what this looked like in Ephesus, and I don't know what it looks like in your life, but it's easy for me to imagine Jesus making the same complaint about me. It's important to note, especially if you're following along in in a Bible in a different translation, that the original text doesn't say you haven't loved or you don't love me and love others as you did at first. It's much simpler. It just says you don't love as you did at first. And so return and do the things that you did at first. Jesus doesn't go into detail about what love looks like in this letter. But we know from lots of other times that Jesus and his disciples talked about love. It's never only one direction. It's always our love for God and it's always our love for each other. It's both. And so his complaint to the church came with an instruction to turn back, to repent, to turn around, to go back to the things that you used to do, the things you did at first, to the ways that you love God in quiet, desperate, secret places of prayer. 
to return to the ways you loved others in sacrificial, generous, selfless places of service. And this is not a one-time thing. Surrendering to love God and love others is not a one-time thing. We have to repeatedly throughout our lives re-surrender to him. And so we sing in the song, God, if you're calling, we're coming. And we're not walking, we're running. Because God, we need re-surrender. And so we do, we re-surrender. It starts with me and once isn't enough, I need to re-surrender and I want to re-surrender to God. So the song that we sing and the passages that we've talked about, they're an invitation for us to God. Say, God, come into my life. Walk into the temple. Come into our church and examine us. Point out in us the tables that need turning, the things that need to change, the behaviors that we need to go back to, the attitudes and the way we treat each other that we need to return to. And before we finish today, we're going to leave some space for God to come into our lives, to speak to us about those things and in those ways, to turn his spotlight on and to listen for his voice. But before we do that, I just want to give you an example of what this looks like for our, our church together. As Laura said earlier, in, uh, in a just less than a couple of weeks' time, we're going to have a church family meeting that the pastoral leaders are calling us to come together because our, our giving, our finances don't match the staffing and the programs that we currently have. And so there's some easy solutions to that one way or the other. But as Laura said, b- before rushing into making those decisions, because some of them are quite difficult, the pastoral leaders just want to share the information, have the conversation and pray and worship together. And there's two possible outcomes from this meeting. Two sim- you know, if you had to simplify it, two possible outcomes from Tuesday week. One is just at a financial level that our giving increases and our resources increase as a church so we're able to continue with the staffing and the ministry programs that we have now and on to more ministry effectiveness. And at a human level and an organizational level, that looks like success. It certainly looks like success to me. But if we are not first and continually re-surrendered to God, each of us and us together, at that meeting and every day, more money, more programs, more people doesn't equal success. Because in God's kingdom and God's economy, re-surrender, continual re-surrender to him is success and it's more important than any effectiveness. And, and the opposite is also true. At one, one outcome of the meeting is that giving doesn't increase, our resources don't increase, and so as a church we do have to make some difficult decisions to reduce staffing or reduce ministry programs and things that we do, and that totally looks like failure to me. At a human level, an organizational level, constricting, constricting contracting is failure. But if we first are re-surrendered to God and we say, God, we don't know, we're not sure, we yield to you again. You know, yielding is, is like coming to a stop sign and coming to a complete stop, checking both ways before cautiously progressing. God, we yield anew to you today in this moment. Then, then nothing, no up or down of people or money or other metrics is success. 
the re-surrender is success, and it's more important than any ministry effectiveness. The most important thing right now today and at that church family meeting is that we are yielded anew to God. Because so often what happens in our lives together as a church, and, and, and I do this as an individual, I'm sure that you don't, but I'll tell you anyway, just in case it resonates with you. And um, the things that God has given me, I hold on to. The things that I have in my life, I hold on to and I look after them. I steward them well, but that also means that often I'll control them and I'll hold on to them for too long. And I'll say, this was good before, so I'm going to keep holding on to this. And this worked before, so I'm going to keep doing this. But like we sing in the song, it's very, very hard for God to return to us and give back to us things that we won't let go of. Very, very hard to surrender and to yield when we won't let go of our tight and strong grip. But when we surrender, when we yield to him, he's able to restore to us and return to us the things that we have surrendered to him. God cares about our church. God cares about you and your life. And his path to your success and your greatness in his kingdom and your effectiveness in his name is first in re-surrender. So before we sing this song together, I want to lead us in a moment of prayer where we do offer ourselves back to God. And if you're not ready for this, don't, don't join in just because you feel like you have to. But the invitation is there. We're going to sing the song together in a moment, but just in, in this attitude of prayer in your heart for you to yield anew and re-surrender to him, to open your heart to him, to open your ears to his voice, to let go of the things that you're holding too tightly to, to let God speak through your imagination of Jesus walking into this room, Jesus walking into your life. Let him affirm what he wants to affirm. Let him correct what he wants to correct. Let him overturn and challenge what needs to change. And so Jesus, in this moment, we invite you to do that. We invite you because we're open. Our door is open as a church and our heart is open as individuals. We invite you to come into our lives, turn your spotlight on as we re-surrender to you. you're feeling shame today about something that's come to mind that's not that's not from God when God comes he brings an invitation to change he doesn't bring shame and condemnation 
So God, for anyone today who's, who's feeling that and hearing that, Lord, would you silence the voice of the enemy? Would you silence our overactive consciences and just bring the voice of your spirit? If what's happening for you is something surprising, something you hadn't really thought about before or, or thought you could never tackle before, that's probably more likely God's voice. And another option, if you're not hearing anything or sensing anything right now, it's possible that God's already talked to you before. And his invitation to return is still there. And so you know what it is that you need to let go of and what you need to return to. As I finish before we sing, I want to pray um, the bridge from the song. So I want to invite you when you're ready to open your eyes, and it'll be on the screen. You can follow along with me, and then in a moment as we sing, we're going to all have the opportunity to turn this into our own prayer as we sing together. But God, I ask today that you would mark your people with your presence. That you would make us as a community a place where you delight to dwell and live. God, may we heed and listen to your hand's correction. O Lord, our shepherd, you do all things well. Your love is firm and tender. Your law is perfect and your judgments are true. And so today, as we run to resurrender to you, you will restore what we return to you. You are restoring as we yield in you. Amen. Would you stand with me? And Bridget and the team are going to lead us.